Hello. Welcome to this edition of Criminal Mischief, the Art and Science of Crime Fiction. I'm D.P. Lyle, your host. Today we're going to talk about one of my favorite topics, and that's storytelling, but not just any storytelling, more regional storytelling, and in particular, Southern storytelling. It's often been said that Southern writers and Southern stories are so rich, and if you go back through the history of literature, the names that are associated with Southern writing are huge. There are names like William Faulkner and James Dickey and Eudora Welty and Flannery O'Connor and Tennessee Williams and Mark Twain, Harper Lee, of course, Truman Capote, James Lee Burke, and it goes on and on. There are uh, such there is such a rich tradition, and obviously these names are giants. Well, what is it about Southern yarns that that attracts so many people's attention? Um, many of the great, even current novels are, are set in the South. I think it comes from the history of how the South was developed. If you look at the post, uh, even the pre and the post-Revolutionary War days, um, Scotch and Irish uh, immigrants came to the U.S., and many of them settled along the Appalachian chain that, that kind of dissects and, and falls down through the South, ending up in, in North Alabama when the, the hill, foothills kind of peter out. But they brought with them their Scotch-Irish traditions. And what were they? They were sitting around telling stories. Uh, you ever met a, a, Scot, a Scotman that that couldn't, uh, couldn't spin off a yarn after a, a few glasses of whiskey or an Irishman that couldn't? No, I haven't either. It's part of the tradition. It's sitting in the pub. It's talking. It's spinning yarns. It's telling tales. It's around the, the fireplace. It, it's, it's at the community uh, uh, gatherings. They told stories. Well, in the American South, uh, it was poor. Uh, I mean, really up until the mid-20th century. It was poor. TVA coming in brought electricity down there, and that changed everything. But prior to that, it was it was a very poor, very uh, very agrarian agrarian uh, farmland, uh, growing crops, living off the land. Didn't have books, didn't have much education. So, telling stories around the fireplace or the campfire became part of the tradition. And um, until television came along, people used to sit around the table and talk to each other. So what, what is it, what are the components and the elements of Southern storytelling that make it so compelling? Well, there are many. You, know, you can't talk about the South unless you talk about country music and the blues and country stores and cornbread and sweet tea and, of course, the weather. So let's start with the weather. Weather is a character in Southern stories. It is in a lot of other, other stories, too, but in the South, it really seems to be. The heat and humidity will, will wilt your clothes and wilt your soul and wilt your will and just wilt you, and you'll want to go find a cool spot to lay down. Maybe it's in the shade. Maybe it's by a stream. Uh, maybe it's in the shade of the barn. Maybe it's in the hayloft. You'll find a place to get out of the sun. Uh, the sweating farmer with the redneck, well, that's where redneck came from. Uh, guys who actually work for a living. Now, Elmore Leonard admonished us not to uh, ever start with the weather. Well, he forgot to tell James Lee Burke that because James Lee Burke, in his uh, particularly his Dave Robichaux novels, which are set in the swamplands of Louisiana, weather is definitely a character. 
And if you want to see how Mr. Burke uses it, pick up his uh, Edgar-winning novel, Black Cherry Blues, and simply read the first paragraph. You will not only see brilliant writing and brilliant storytelling, but you will see how the weather drags you into that story and becomes such a part of the Melu that um, it is a character in the story. We have storms down there, not not only just tornadoes, but we have electrical storms, we call them, or thunder boomers, where the rain is just torrential and the lightning and the, and the thunder, and it's just breathtaking. And after the storm, even before the storm, you can smell the ozone in the air. And then afterwards, that clean smell that uh, uh, of fresh soil and fresh greenery. So weather is very, very, very important in Southern writing. It is a character. And speaking of characters, the South is full of characters. You know, there's the cliches. You know, there's the local sheriff with a big gun and an even bigger belly, or there's the cheerleader with a with a big uh, big smile and the bouncy blonde hair, and the farmer with his overhauls overalls and the straw hanging out of his mouth and his sun-baked neck like I talked about. Those are cliches, but they're cliches because they're, they're real. Those characters did exist, less so now, but they did. Um, but there's also such compelling, if you go back through the history of literature, Southern characters. I mean, let's just start with Scarlett O'Hara. My goodness. Uh, Gone with the Wind, of course. She just defies description. Um, she is Southern to the core. She is Atlanta to the core. She is Tara, her land to the core. Uh, she's tough. Uh, she's flighty and goofy, but tough. You do not want to cross her. She is a survivor by whatever means are necessary. It's a very strong-willed Southern woman, and it made her such a great character. Another one would be Scout from To Kill a Mockingbird. We see that story which is really the story of Atticus, her father, and his defense of a social injustice. But we see it through the eyes of Scout, and she is such a compelling character. And I think when Harper Lee decided to use Scout as the um, point-of-view character, it was an absolute brilliant move. Had she told the story from Atticus's point of view, I think it would have lost much of its impact because it was the childhood innocence of Scout that made that story work. And so Scout is a great Southern character. Uh, she had her friends and she had her fear. She had Pooh Radley that she was terrified of. She had her brother Jim. And so the whole group of characters there in that little town, which where Harper Lee lived, was uh, Monroeville. It was actually probably based on that. And then what about Willie Stark? That's the uh, character introduced by Robert Penn Warren in, in his wonderful book, All the King's Men. Now, Willie Stark is based on Huey P. Long. And if you don't know who Huey P. Long is, look him up. He is a giant in, uh, in American history, in American politics. He, I think he was a U.S. senator from uh, Louisiana. He was the governor of Louisiana. He was corrupt to the core. Everybody around him was corrupt. And his corruption fell generation after generation after generation, and indeed, Huey Long's shadow still lays over Louisiana. Uh, chicken in every pot. He, he was a, a bigger-than-life character. Uh, he was the prototypical, if you will, Southern politician, except he was probably even more corrupt. Uh, 
And then we get to a really marvelous character, which is uh, the, the Don Quixote character of Ignatius Riley, who is in John Kennedy O'Toole's masterpiece, The Confederacy of Dunces. And if you haven't met Ignatius, you need to pick up Confederacy of Dunces and read it. It is a brilliant, brilliant, brilliant book, and he is a wonderful character. Now, people in the South have nicknames. First of all, people call everybody by their last name. They don't call everybody by their first name. You know, you just grow up calling your buddies by their last name. That's just the way it is. Uh, but they also have nicknames. A lot of people have nick nicknames. I have my, my Dub Walker series. I grew up with a guy named Dub. His father was also Dub, so they were Big Dub and Little Dub. I also went to school with a guy named Slick. His dad was also Slick. There was Big Slick and Little Slick. Um, I played uh, Little League Baseball. My coach, whose name I do not even know, we just called him Breadman. That was his nickname. That's what everybody called him, Breadman. Everybody in town knew him as Breadman. But more often than not, they called him Bread. So his nickname had a nickname. And we played against another coach who was called Buttermilk. I don't know Buttermilk's name either. But people also just called him Milk. So he had a nickname for his nickname. <clears throat> this, is, this is common in the South. And it's great storytelling fodder. So let's look at the language. Yeah, we say ain't, and we say ain't a lot, and it's a wonderful, wonderful word. Don't be afraid of it. It will set your character automatically, and you don't have to get into all that dialect stuff. If you look at speech patterns and word choices and sentence structure, you can get the character across without using all those dropped G's and, and dialect that really, for the most part, annoys readers so be careful of that but we use ain't obviously it stands for isn't and aren't but it sounds so much better we aren't going to make it to dinner we ain't gonna make it to dinner i mean it it just flows better and then that brings up the word y'all huge arguments over whether y'all is singular or plural well it's both and it's interchangeable and it depends on context and depends on who's saying it and depends on what they're talking about and depends on how they say it. So you could pass someone on the street, you could pass two or three guys on the street, say, how y'all doing? And that means you're asking, is everybody okay? You could just see one person walking down the street, how y'all doing? And that can just mean, how are you doing? Sounds the same, same word, but it means things. And to confuse it further, there's all y'all. How's all y'all doing? Well, all y'all can mean a lot of things. If it's said to a group of people, it can mean all of them. If it's said to an individual, it can just mean you. Really, it can? Yes, it can. Because it means how's all of you doing? Or it could mean how's you and your family and friends and coworkers and everybody, all y'all, everybody around you. Uh, it can mean all of that. And it, again, depends upon who's saying it, how it's said, and the context of the situation. So y'all and all y'all can both be singular and be plural. It all depends on how it's used and who it's used to. Which brings up another one, momonym. <laughs> now that's the way of saying your mother and them, whoever them is. Them usually means the family or, or, or some other group. But how's your momonym? And uh, that really means everybody around your mother. So you see somebody, say, oh, how's your mom and them? Oh, they're doing fine. You know, Uncle Joe, he, he's, he's got uh, gout. But other than that, everybody's doing fine. And so it kind of means everybody around your mother. 
Uh, but mom and them, that's it. Another term. Sunday was a week ago. What does that mean? What it means was the Sunday before the last Sunday. <laughs> so it was a week before Sunday. Before the last Sunday. So Sunday was a week ago. Uh, I love it. Makes sense to me. And then one that really, really, really strikes a chord is bless your heart. Now, this can mean so many things, again, depending on how it's said, body language, who's saying it to whom, um, the context, everything. So if two ladies are sitting on, in the rockers on their porch on a, on, a, on a bright sunny day and one of them says, you know, the doctor told me I got the diabetes. And, well, bless your heart. I can't believe that. Well, that is a true expression of sympathy. Someone can say, you know, my child, she's got this ear infection. Well, bless your heart and bless her heart. Again, sympathy. Or it could be that someone says something like, well, you know, I don't too much care for so-and-so. Well, bless your heart. It's kind of like meaning, well, you're mentally defective, and I feel sorry for you because everybody likes that person. Uh, so it can be sarcastic. It can be negative. It can be positive. It can be supportive. It can be all those things, but it's a great, great, great term. Bless your heart. Food. You have to understand food to understand the South. We love our barbecue and our fried chicken. We eat grits. We like turnip greens and squash. We like fried green tomatoes. We like our tea with sugar in it. It's called sweet tea. I don't particularly care for that. I'd rather have plain tea, but sweet tea is as Southern as anything. And it's basically just tea with a bunch of sugar in it. It's the right way to make it and the wrong way to make it, but, but, but sweet tea is just sweet tea. Our cornbread, no sugar. Don't put sugar in your cornbread. If you do, it's just a little pinch. We don't like corn pudding and corn cake. We like cornbread. There's a difference. Yankee cornbread has sugar in it. I live out here in California. Everybody, every restaurant that has cornbread has Yankee cornbread. They put too much sugar in it. They make it too sweet. And that's not what cornbread's about. Um, Mark Twain famously said, if you, want it, if you want to know a man's politics, tell me how he makes his cornbread. And, and, and that was true. So this has, been, this has been generational, the difference between sweet cornbread and non-sweet cornbread. So... He, he knew that, and, and Mark Twain always got to the heart of the matter, as it were. We like banana pudding and, of course, pecan pie. Pecan pie is about as southern as, uh, as anything. My mom made the greatest ever. She was a fantastic pecan pie maker. We eat uh, sweet potatoes and okra and corn and all that stuff, fresh tomatoes. We eat stewed tomatoes. Um, so food in the South is, is important, and particularly in New Orleans. And, and if you read my book, A-List, which is set in New Orleans, you, we'll, we visit several restaurants there with Jake and crew, and, uh, and food is an important, an important ingredient in, in writing about New Orleans and the South in general. Football. To understand the South, you have to understand football, college football. If you don't understand that, then you don't understand the South. People don't have weddings on Saturdays during football season because nobody will come. They'll be off watching their favorite team play or they'll be watching on TV or listening to it on the radio. 
but they will not come to the wedding. So people don't get married on Saturdays during football season in the South. It's not allowed. I think there's laws in most states against it. I went to the University of Alabama. Roll tight. I hate Auburn. I hate everything about Auburn. Their fight song, their school colors, everything about it. Their loveliest little silly, silly city in the plains. I hate all of them. That's college football in the South. And I read a story once. If you know who Rick Bragg is, great. If you don't, shame on you. Rick Bragg is a great Southern writer. He wrote a book called All Over But the Shouting, which is the story of his family. His mother used to use that phrase a lot, apparently. And uh, she was a saint, and his father was more or less an abusive alcoholic. So it's kind of his coming-of-age story, and now he grew up there. And he actually grew up about 40 miles from where I did. I was up in Huntsville, Alabama, and he grew up in, in northeast Alabama. And But he grew up in a dirt-poor environment. And this story is all about that. And the writing is brilliant. And the writing is so Southern. Everything about it. Um, and it's wonderfully written. Well, he won a Pulitzer Prize. Well, there's another Pulitzer Prize winner from Alabama that's very famous named Harper Lee. <clears throat> she lives down in Monroeville. She grew up with Truman Capote down there who was living with his aunt, I believe it was at that time. So she and Truman grew up together. Well, she's also obviously won a Pulitzer Prize for To Kill a Mockingbird. So uh, she went to the University of Alabama. Bless her heart, and I mean that in the kindest way. Um, well, Rick Bragg, people kept telling him, as the story goes, that uh, you know he, you need to meet Harper Lee. You know, you're both Alabama writers. You both won the Pulitzer Prize. It, you know, you should do that. And I think Rick's take was, I'm not that guy. I'm not the guy that's going to go knock on her door on her door and say hello and I'm just not that guy but they kept hounding him and said you know she's she's old and she's not doing well and she's living in a nursing facility and you know she, it, you're going to regret it if she passes away before you get to meet her you're going to regret it so finally he relented as it goes and he went down there to see her and apparently he sh showed up at the nursing home where she was and walked down to her room and as he enters the room there's another couple saying goodbye to her and they're leaving. And she waves and nods goodbye, and they walk out, and Rick walks in. Before she says anything, Harper Lee looks at him and says, those are the only two people from Auburn I ever gave a damn about. That sums it up. You have to understand college football to understand the South. So you can see that we have characters bigger than life. We have a language that's all our own. We have food. We have weather. We have nicknames. We have wonderful stories, and uh, the South is a great place to set books. You don't have to live there. You know, I wrote the Royal Pains books, and they were set in the Hamptons. I've never been to the Hamptons in my life. Uh, you do research. You pay attention, and you learn about stuff, and then read, and read Southern writers, the ones we talked about. Now, obviously, my Southern roots are, roots are deep because I was born in Alabama, and I lived there all the way through medical school and internship before I left and went off to Houston and then on out to California. My Dub Walker series, or forensic thrillers, they're all set in and around Huntsville for the most part, <clears throat> which is where I grew up. And it has a lot of high-tech stuff there. And Huntsville was an interesting town. Dub is a forensic specialist, and he worked in a forensic science uh, lab uh, 
uh, with the coroner there in Huntsville. That's his background after being an MP in the military. Um, but people may not know that, that there in Huntsville is the Marshall Space Flight Center. That's where Von Braun and his people built all the rockets. So where Huntsville on one hand is a sleepy little southern town with churches on, on every corner and barbecue joints everywhere and pickup trucks all over the road, it also happens to have this space program. And I, as a kid growing up, I thought everybody had a space program in their backyard. Well, anyway, in my Dub Walker series, NASA does a lot of things that, um, that are in the forensic science development world. They've developed a lot of techniques. One notable one is the Visar system, which is a visual image, image stabilization and registry. If you see an ATM camera, and, and it has a car off in the distance, and they're able to enhance that and get the license plate. Well, that's what this is. And it was uh, invented by a guy named uh, Dr. David Hathaway and his partner at NASA. He, he is the director of the Solar Imaging Program, and I had a chance to meet David and talk to him about Visar, and I actually used a lot of that in my first Dub Walker book. And actually, David appears as Dr. Wendell Volick, and he got a big kick out of that. But the point is, is that the Walker series are set in and around Huntsville. That's a very unique town that it has all the Southern roots, but it has all the high tech stuff. Then for my Jake Longley series, I moved down to South Alabama. Uh, Jake lives in Gulf Shores. And so Deep Six, the first book, and that takes place down, down around there. Jake has a place on the sand. Uh, he's an ex-professional baseball player, but now he runs a bar and chases bikinis, as he puts it. That's his goal in life. His father, Ray, who's an ex-whatever black ops guy for the military, is a PI agent. PI, uh, he owns has owns PI business. Can't understand why Jake wastes his time with his bar and running around when he should be working for him. Obviously, you can see where the where the conflict comes from. And these are comedic thrillers. They're, they're funny, they're slapstickish in a way. So that one was set down in Gulf Shores. And then for A-List, the second one, I moved to New Orleans. And it, that's a whole fun New Orleans story. And I, I love New Orleans. I've probably been there 30 times in my life. Would go back tomorrow because it's, it's a great town. Then uh, for Sunshine State, I moved to the Panhandle of Florida. Of course, Sunshine State had to be in Florida to an imaginary town. And then the one that's coming next May is called Rigged, and it's set in a wonderful artsy community of Fairhope, Alabama. It's down close to Mobile, down on the Gulf area. It sits on Mobile Bay, faces west, so there's wonderful sunsets over the bay. And it's got a great bookstore and great little art shops and cafes and bars and restaurants and stuff. And it's just a very cool community. So if your travel plans ever take you down to that area, go to Fairhope and read rigged because it'll take you through fair hope and i'm starting a new series uh that's coming uh in october uh it's my first uh, kane harper series uh, bobby kane and harper mccoy are two kids that were basically uh kane was picked up in a in a abandoned in a, a, tr a, a bus station was picked up by this itinerant criminal family and Harper was actually purchased from her alcoholic half Cherokee mother to make a long story short up through about age 12 they were raised and taught to to lie steal cheat do whatever it takes to get through life <clears throat> and Bobby became a knife expert <clears throat> and was known as Bobby Blade but those stories are are set uh, uh, Kane and Harper live in in Nashville 
And, and so that's where their base of operation is. After the family broke up and they got adopted and separated, they both ended up in the military unbeknownst to the other. Bobby basically a stealth assassin <clears throat> for various black ops. Harper ended up with the CIA running black ops, and so their paths cross again 15 years after they were separated as, quote, brother and sisters because uh, they were raised that way by the family. Uh, and they left the military after that and became fixers. They fixed the unfixable by whatever means are necessary. So the first story is called Skin in the Game. It's set in and around Nashville uh, and, and down on the, the, in an imaginary town uh, uh, created on the shores of Tim's Ford Lake, which is a gorgeous body of water. I think it's about 170, 180 miles long, very irregular. The trees come right down to the water. It is a gorgeous, gorgeous place in central Tennessee. My short story, Even Steven, that appeared in Thriller 3, Love is Murder, one of ITW's anthology publications, was, was set in Huntsville and actually later turned into my third uh, Dub Walker book called Run to Ground. I just took that short story and took off from there. Bottom Line can be found in, the, in For the Sake of the Game, which is a story inspired by the Sherlock Holmes canon, uh, and it's, it's set in a fictional southern locale. So I write about the South. I like to write about the South. Uh, obviously, I grew up there, so I understand the rhythm of the place. It's changed a lot, obviously, over the last uh, several decades, and I don't live there anymore, but I do remember my roots. And so I encourage you to, to read these Southern stories, read the writers that I talked about earlier. Now, this podcast basically began as an article called Storytelling in Dixie that I wrote for the Mystery Readers Journal, which is a publication of Mystery Readers uh, International. And if you do not subscribe to that that magazine or do not belong to Mystery Readers International, you should. It's a great organization. They give out the McCavity Award every year. Um, but it's just a great organization. It's very well run, and, and their newsletter is fantastic. And they periodically put out these essays, if you will, uh, uh, called author, author, and, and other things that go into their, uh, their publication. And, and it's great reading and it's great stuff for writers. So there will be links on my website, uh, to this and the show notes for this, um, um, this podcast, which will also be the article that was published there, but it'll have links to Mr. Readers International and the journal. So, uh, sign up. It's a fantastic organization. So that's our little stroll through um, Southern storytelling, and I hope you've enjoyed it, and hopefully it will make you think about, hey, you know, maybe I got a story that I can set down there, and maybe it'll be fun to live in that world for a while. So until next time, this is D.P. Lyle uh, here on Criminal Mischief, and I'll see you soon. <laughs>